0: Abu Ghraib was already a notorious prison when American forces took it over in the years between 2003 and 2006. Saddam Hussein's brutal regime had ensured that the prison struck fear into the hearts and minds of all Iraqis during his time as dictator, with the prison becoming famous locally for torture and execution of political dissenters. During desert operations in Iraq, Abu Ghraib was converted to a U.S. military prison for the purposes of housing enemy combatants and prisoners suspected of retaining information that would be tactically useful to U.S. forces. To do this, men suspected of being hostile to American interests were often arrested along with their families, to include women and children. Cell Blocks 1A and 1B were known to the soldiers as, quote, hard sites, or housing units where the most dangerous prisoners were kept. Oftentimes, these prisoners awaited interrogation by military intelligence personnel. Lacking guidance from superiors in the chain of command, soldiers with little to no experience working with prisoners were often tasked with helping to prepare prisoners for interrogation by the use of what was termed, quote, stress positions, whereby prisoners would be forced to stand for excessive periods of time, denied sleep, or be handcuffed in incredibly uncomfortable positions under threat of electrical shocks. Adding to the confusion was the continual bickering amongst politicians over the definition of these prisoners, and their rights, as enemy combatants. The scene was set for disaster when on April 28, 2004, Joseph M. Darby, a specialist with the United States Army, came across pictures of prisoners being tortured on a CD-ROM he was loaned from Charles Grainer, another specialist in the Army who worked directly with the prisoners at Abu Ghraib. The photos kicked off a scandal that caused worldwide outrage with depictions of prisoners in Abu Ghraib being posed nude and in simulated homosexual acts, piled into pyramids and on top of each other with their heads and faces covered in black hoods and with them tethered as if dogs on a leash. One particularly shocking photo included a prisoner standing on a box with a sandbag over his head and his hands outstretched with electrical wires attached to them. Two more photographs depicted dead Iraqis, their bodies bruised as if beaten to death. In many instances, soldiers posed in the photos alongside with prisoners, often grinning widely or giving the camera a thumbs up. When news of the abuses at Abu Ghraib broke, the U.S. government quickly launched an investigation as high-ranking politicians and military personnel tried to distance themselves from the scandal. The investigation that followed uncovered a number of disturbing facts about the lawless conditions that led up to the abuses of the prisoners. It was discovered that Brigadier General Janis Karpinski, who was placed in charge of military prisons in Iraq, had no prior correctional experience. It was also discovered that the majority of military police charged with working in Abu Ghraib also had no previous correctional experience. In February 2004, a 53-page report was compiled, although never intended for public release. In April of the same year, the New York Times was able to procure a copy of the report. And release a number of previously unknown facts regarding the abuses these included that quote sadistic blatant and wanton criminal abuses were perpetuated by soldiers of the 372nd military police company and by members of the american intelligence community some of whom were even private contractors in 2003. these abuses included beatings sexual assault and a threat of rape the use of military dogs for intimidation, and pouring freezing water on prisoners. Members of the 372nd Military Police Company asserted that they had received no training guidelines in the operations of the prison or the treatment of the prisoners, but that they were routinely encouraged by intelligence officials and superiors to break the wills of the prisoners by, quote, softening them up and making vague statements such as, make sure this prisoner has a bad night. MPs working at Abu Ghraib later claimed they did not report these abuses because they believed they were within the guidelines for the treatment of enemy combatants. Despite these tactics, however, very little useful intelligence was obtained. Consolidated Analysis Center Incorporated, otherwise known as CACI, the private contractor in charge of interrogations at Abu Ghraib, is currently being sued by a group of Iraqi citizens over their treatment while at the prison. In total, 11 soldiers were convicted of abuses at Abu Ghraib. One officer received non-judicial punishment, one was acquitted, and several others received administrative punishment. This episode is about Abu Ghraib.
1: Hello and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark sides of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono.
0: And Dr. David Morellos.
1: So David, this is a case you and I have discussed a lot.
0: Yes we have.
1: And the past couple of weeks we've watched so many documentaries, we've read so many articles. And still, it's just a difficult case to talk about.
0: I agree. I think that to a certain extent, for those of us who do work in corrections, this is kind of personal. I don't know how else to say it.
1: Yeah, I would agree. So, you know, I want to point out before we get into the episode that you and I have never served in the military. Right. We've never been to war, so I'm sure we're going to have a different view on these things than people who have. And in researching this episode, we talked to a lot of our friends who have served in the military about this case. And what I feel I've heard time and again is, you don't understand until you've been in that situation.
0: I think that there's definitely merit to that point of view. I, I do think that we do have to look at the whole situation in the context, which is a war, right. which you know changes everything. I think that when you're dealing with enemy combatants... There could be a feeling that, uh, you know, we got to do what we got to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I just don't know that we will ever have a full appreciation of what it's like to be in a war zone having never been there. Right. I just wanted to kind of put that out there right off. You know, we're coming at this case from the perspective as non-military, but as people who have a lot of experience working in corrections.
0: Well, that's the other half of this case. There's There's the war aspect of it, but there's also the correctional piece, which we do have a lot of experience with.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's probably what we're going to focus mostly on in this episode. So, you know, I think everyone knows my specialty is in forensic psychology, but I feel like if I went back to school, I would probably make social psychology my second specialty. Interesting. Yeah, you know, as human beings, we're social creatures, and studying how we behave in complex social situations is absolutely fascinating to me. And I don't think you can really talk about Abu Ghraib without talking about the social psychology of it. Many of the articles I read and documentaries that we watched used Stanley Milgram's obedience study to explain the torture the soldiers inflicted at Abu Ghraib. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Milgram, Stanley Milgram was a professor at Stanford University in the 1960s. He was very interested in the behavior of the Nazis during World War II. He had a theory that the Nazis were not just evil people who came together to torture and murder the Jews, but rather that they were normal people who would not have normally committed such violence if they were not ordered to do so by those in authority. So Milgram actually ran several studies examining this idea that people were likely to obey those in authority, even if the behavior was against their moral values. In each one of these versions of his study, he changed one piece of how it was conducted. The experiment most people are familiar with is the one in the lab at Stanford, the one depicted in the film he made about the experiments, which we'll have a link to on our website. In this experiment, the experimenter who was wearing a lab coat instructed participants to administer shocks of increasing strength to a person in another room when the person responded incorrectly to a word pair task. What the participant didn't know was that the learner was actually a confederate of the study. So what that means is that there was no one actually receiving the shocks.
0: They were just acting like they were receiving the shocks.
1: Right, right. It was just so that the person, the, the participant, believed that they were shocking somebody. Right. So this person, the Confederate, was called the learner. So this person was instructed to provide many incorrect responses so the participant would have to administer shocks all the way up to the highest voltage, which if I remember correctly was 450 volts. During the experiment, the learner protested several times, said he was in pain, said he had a heart condition, and demanded to be let out of the room. Eventually, the learner stopped responding altogether, and each time the learner protested, the experimenter told the participant to continue. If the participant stated he did not want to go on, the experimenter told him it was imperative he continue and told him that he, the experimenter, assumed all responsibility for any harm that occurred to the learner. And you know what Milgram found?
0: That a lot of people were willing to shock people to death.
1: Well, sort of. 65% of the participants continued to the very end, so all the way up to 450 volts, You remember how I said Milgram did other variations of the study? Yeah. He actually conducted a total of 18 variations, and what he found was that there were certain variables that made it more or less likely somebody would obey. He found that the participant was more likely to obey if the experimenter was closer in physical proximity and if he believed the experimenter had actual authority. So remember I said the experimenter had a lab coat on? Right. So that was actually an important piece. So if there was some kind of physical way that associated the person with being an authority, so some sort of uniform, Mm -hmm. the person was more likely to obey. They were also more likely to obey if they were in a prestigious setting and if they felt less personal responsibility for the outcome. However, Milgram also found certain conditions that made it less likely the participants would follow the orders. He found that if the participant actually had to force the learner's hand down on the shock plate, they were much less likely to do it, suggesting that having to touch the victim decreased obeying. Hmm. He also found that if there were other people present who refused, this increased the likelihood the participant would also refuse. Milgram also found that if the experimenter was not in the room, participants were more likely to not go along with the orders. So after Milgram's study, there was a strong belief that a person's situation contributed largely to his or her behavior. And it suggested that people may not have as much conscious control over their behavior as they once thought, especially in situations where they are being directed to behave in certain ways by authority figures. So I think we can see why many have pointed to this experiment to explain what occurred in Abu Ghraib. It was believed that there were orders handed down from high-ranking officials that covertly encouraged the soldiers to torture the detainees. Now, everything I found indicated the language was more suggestive rather than overt, and that it only prohibited the most extreme behaviors. For instance, the guidance provided a very narrow definition of torture as pain associated with organ failure, loss of bodily function, or death. That was it. Those were the only three conditions that they said constituted torture. Right. And as a result, they didn't discourage the infliction of pain when it didn't meet one of those three conditions. And at the courts martial, the soldiers indicated they were just doing what they had been told to do. So in addition to the written directives, I wanted to point out that military intelligence had a large presence at Abu Ghraib, as you mentioned in the intro especially at the hard site. And the soldiers said they felt military intelligence was in charge and could give them orders to, quote-unquote, soften up the detainees, which, as you said, was reportedly interpreted as using sleep deprivation, stress positions, humiliation, intimidation, and physical pain, so they would be easier to break during interrogation. Right. Since Milgram's study, there have been many social psychologists examining conformity, compliance, and obedience. And they've identified other factors that may influence these behaviors. Some of these other factors are ambiguity of the situation, so the more ambiguous, the more likely they will obey, getting rewards for following orders, avoiding punishment by obeying, and making the behavior routine, you know, just this is what we do in this situation type thing. Right. And then the final one was moral disengagement. And I wanted to spend just a quick moment talking about that. Moral disengagement occurs when people are in very dangerous or high-stress environments. So this is kind of where people's like emotional, like their emotions are overwhelmed in a sense, and it decreases their ability to think rationally in those situations. So, I mean, think about like, can you think of a time, David, maybe when you were in a very high-stress situation and it's almost like you don't think, you almost just act. Yeah, for like, sure. Like that fight or flight takes over or, you know, it's almost more um, instinctual in nature. Right, so absolutely. It's, yeah, it's this idea that, you know, when we're in very highly emotionally charged situations, we have a harder time kind of slowing down and thinking rationally. Mm-hmm. So I would argue these additional factors also applied at Abu Ghraib. In military culture and in law enforcement culture as well, there is an expectation that you will obey your superiors. In both cultures, you're facing potentially deadly situations where it is imperative people respond in a certain manner and where there needs to be someone in charge. As a result, part of the training for both soldiers and officers is that we need to respect our chain of command, especially in high-stress situations. Typically, people are not encouraged to question commands. They are rewarded for obeying and reprimanded for refusing. Additionally, there is a process where soldiers and officers are socialized in a way to see the quote-unquote others, whether that be the enemy at war or criminals, as being categorically different and inferior. In a manner, this can be effective in military or law enforcement situations because it enables officers or soldiers to do what is necessary you know, without a lot of emotional distress and so that they can act very quickly. However, there's a very dark side to this as well. When we see people as less human or not human at all, that creates the risk that we will not treat them in humane ways. As a result, at least in the correctional institutions where I've worked, we're constantly reminded that it's our duty to care for the individuals in our custody. We must make sure they are healthy and safe.
0: Well, that's one of the biggest lessons, I think, that we learn in corrections. That's one of the biggest things that they try to drive home to us is the prisoners are there as punishment. They're not there for punishment, which is two very different things.
1: I would agree. I mean, you know, it's not our job to make it terrible for them there. It's our job to keep them safe, to keep them healthy, and to give them opportunities for reform. Right. So I think that, that that's a very important thing to keep in mind as we talk about Abu Ghraib, because I don't believe that that was really happening.
0: Yeah, I don't think that that was the part of the mission at all.
1: So, you know, in corrections and in military, you know, I can only speak for the law enforcement piece of it. We're reminded that while we're expected to obey our superiors, we also have a moral and legal obligation to refuse, and in fact, to report anything which is harmful or illegal. And in fact, if we don't do that, if we just blindly obey something that is illegal, we can be held personally responsible for that.
0: Right. It's called failure to report, whereby we would get in trouble for not reporting when we have firsthand knowledge of something illegal taking place.
1: And again, I don't think that that was something that the soldiers at Abu Ghraib were reminded about. I mean, it it certainly applied, obviously, because they were held responsible for their behavior, Right. but I don't know that that was something that they were reminded about. We know that the MPs that were running the prison did not receive any formal correctional training, but it is disturbing that the two senior men who were court-martialed for the abuse did have prior correctional experience. Right. And I know that that's something that you're gonna speak about. But, you know, in my view, I think it's very likely that what happened there was some combination of personal characteristics that led the soldiers to be more likely to treat people in this way. An intoxication with power, seeing the detainees as non-human, and a perceived or real directive to engage in torture. So, you know, while at first blush it appears Milgram's study may very well be a plausible explanation for what occurred at Abu Ghraib, And I do think that it may help to explain things. It's not the entire picture in my mind, because there isn't really evidence, at least not that I found, that every or even most soldiers engaged in this behavior. It was reportedly only a small group. They were on the overnight shift, and they were also in a more secluded and secure part of the prison. It's possible that these things also increased the likelihood of their behavior or contributed to it in another manner. What we know about human behavior is that it is neither determined solely by our individual characteristics or solely by our situation. It's a complex interaction of the two, where our behavior is influenced by our internal thoughts, beliefs, temperament, etc., and by situational factors in the environment. The environment then is changed by our behavior, our behavior adapts to the environment, and on and on we go. They are constantly interacting, and it's extremely difficult to determine what pieces of our behavior are determined by one versus the other. And what we do know about the prison at Abu Ghraib is that there was very little oversight. There was a person in charge who had a history of violence, and there was little response to those who reported their concerns. One thing we didn't mention in the intro was that there were some MPs who didn't work specifically in the hard site, but who reported concern about the treatment of the detainees early on, and they were kind of blown off. The other thing we didn't mention was that Specialist Greener actually received commendations for his work in the prison prior to the photos being discovered. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, his behavior was actually rewarded early on. It was really a perfect storm, in my view, of bad judgment, bad behavior, and bad situational factors that came together. While it may be tempting to use Milgram's experiment as an explanation for what happened at Abu Ghraib and call it a day, I believe that's far too simple. We need to consider all of the factors and realize that while the structure of the military and the encouragement to obey may have been one factor, there was also personal responsibility at play. I think anytime we encourage people to fully attribute their behavior to factors outside of themselves, that's a bad idea, just in my opinion. You know, but at the same time, I think we also need to be aware of the pressure of our situation and be thoughtful about how we decide to conform our behavior or not.
0: Okay. I definitely agree with you that there was a perfect storm of factors that came together to create this situation, um, although we are definitely going to disagree on a few things, I think, in this particular case. I have a case. feeling
1: we are, too, just from our discussion. So this, this will be interesting.
0: Yeah. So first off, I think that your statement about having not served in the military is a thoughtful one. As we know firsthand what it's like to be judged by others for what we do in corrections, by those who have no experience working in this challenging field.
1: Uh, yes, I would agree.
0: Yeah. And so this situation is one where the lines between correctional work and war are sort of blurred and difficult to separate. And it seems that the politicians, our leaders, you know, they did very little to help this situation at the time, as they themselves offered very little in the way of legal and operational guidance, at least from what I've seen.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounded like a lot of the directives were pretty, as I said, vague, And then when people were directly questioned about it, a lot of people claimed they had no knowledge of it initially.
0: Of course they did. Of course they, they claimed they had no knowledge of it. So I'll get to that in a second. But so to say that this whole situation grinds my gears is sort of an understatement. There's so much to say about this entire situation. I found it difficult to find a place to start. You know that I get very passionate concerning matters of corrections and incarceration
1: Yes, and I, I, would, I would agree that I do too.
0: Yeah. This is one of those fields where both you and I constantly have to correct, you know, no pun intended, <laughs> people's perceptions of what we do, how prisons operate, what our relationships with prisoners are, so forth. This extends to many misconceptions about everything from legal rights of prisoners to their psychology to the day-to-day operations of a prison. I mean, everything. We spend a lot of time explaining things like this to people, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. We have to concede that we do have to do this because of the nature of prisons. They're mysterious sort of worlds that most people in the general populace are unfamiliar with. Prisons are opaque. That's just the nature of it. That in itself is a problem, but that's another topic.
1: Well, and then I think what people do see of prison, I mean, it's usually very sensationalized. It's part of, you know, TV shows or movies that are very unrealistic. Absolutely. Or, you know, docu- you know, quote unquote documentaries where people are really putting on a show. And so I would agree. It's a very skewed view.
0: Yeah. So when something like this happens, Abu Ghraib, it bothers me a great deal because it affects our profession so directly. I really hate reading about abuses in prisons, only to dig a little bit deeper and discover things like a lack of training, like substandard supervision and guidance, or a lack of a defined mission or adequate support for those charged with carrying out that mission. And it seems to me like all of the above were part of the abuses at Abu Ghraib. So let's start with Milgram. I really enjoyed your explanation on Milgram as it highlighted some more information than I previously did not know about the study. There were all those different aspects mm-hmm. that you had mentioned. Um, in pop culture, we generally get the very watered-down version, so your explanation was enlightening. We also already talked about Zimbardo and the Stanford Prison Experiment, where I voiced a number of my objections with that whole situation.
1: As did I.
0: Sure. Sure. But Milgram, with the idea that people will commit even the most extremely cruel acts As long as they can diffuse responsibility for them by attributing them to some kind of higher authority Is of course an interesting one In law enforcement, military, and paramilitary organizations Following orders is, of course, seen as incredibly important to the orderly running of the organization And imperative to success in times of war Somebody has to be in charge after all So I think here, this was probably one of the biggest problems first and foremost. There seemed to be a a lack of competent leadership in defining the rules and policies regarding the care and rights of the prisoners. So this represents the first true divergence with corrections here in the United States versus the example at Abu Ghraib. Where we work, Mm -hmm. in the prison, we have a binder upon binder, stacks of operational manuals and levels of oversight that we constantly have to contend with. All of these come with the very clear stipulation that if you screw this up, if we step outside of policy, we can be held personally liable. In other words, if we mistreat an inmate by stepping outside of policy and doing something we're not supposed to be doing, we will not be protected or defended by the government should an inmate press charges against us or come after us civilly. This is made very clear year after year at training and at our initial academy. So we have a very strong motivators to remain within the confines of policy for our own self-preservation. If I get sued by an inmate, I don't want to have to hire my own attorney to deal with that mess. I want the agency to protect
1: me. Yeah, which which they will as long as you are doing what you're supposed to be doing. Right,
0: As long as I'm in the scope of my duties and I'm adhering to policy. Yes. Sound correctional policy. Sure. And that's fair. So right from the beginning, there seemed to be none of these things going on at Abu Ghraib. They rounded up a bunch of soldiers who had basically zero experience, with the exception of a few of them, working with prisoners and the unique challenges that prisoners can represent. So this is another issue that really irritates me. I mean, it really irritates me. (laughs) So quick story. When I first got the job working at the prison, I thought it would be temporary and that I would most likely move on quickly. At least that's what I wanted to do. You know, something more high speed later on down the road, whatever. So at the time, one of my friends um, made a flippant remark about how something to the effect of any warm body will do for that job.
1: I've also heard like a monkey could do your job. Yeah, a
0: monkey could do your job. Sure. sure. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I kind of laughed because I, too, had the same basic perception of corrections officers that literally anyone could do this job. That it was simply a stepping stone, hopefully towards something bigger and better in the government. The way the military or whatever shadowy private defi- defense contractor made the decision to staff Abu Ghraib kind of fits this stunted kind of logic. It's like, well, anyone can do this job, so throw a bunch of fresh-faced MPs with no experience in there. I mean, how hard could it be, right?
1: Right. I Yeah, that was totally the the feeling I got, too. Yeah.
0: What most people don't know is just how much of a true vocation working in corrections really is. It takes a significant amount of specialized training to do this work. And I say this as someone who's done it for 17 years now, starting as an officer. I too really thought it would be easy work. I learned very quickly that when you start really getting into the amount of work and know-how that it takes to monitor, house, and care for a population of people like this, things can get very complicated very quickly. I don't know how to begin to change the public perception of corrections officers other than just by talking about it the way I am now. I do know that situations like Abu Ghraib certainly don't help as they seem to only reinforce Zimbardo's theories about incarceration and take a lot of time for people like myself to try to explain to others. We have a lot of issues here. The first being that even the military seems to think that anyone can run a prison. So just throw some soldiers in there. Corrections officers often face this kind of ignorance as law enforcement because we generally don't arrest people. So, in law enforcement, corrections, you know, corrections officers, although we are a necessary part of the justice system, generally we're not taken that seriously. Yeah. So, this seemed to be the case at Abu Ghraib. How difficult could running a prison really be anyway, right? Easy peasy, Right. Nearly all the soldiers involved in the scandal attested to the fact that there was no correctional training offered to them before they took over the prison. There was no guidance regarding the treatment of prisoners, their rights, their cultural needs, or practices, etc. Instead, the opposite happened. These soldiers were thrown in there with the idea that these men were enemy combatants, not prisoners with specific rights. This is a whole different category that throws even more confusion into the mix. In the practice of contemporary corrections, we are constantly trained and updated on the rights of inmates. For instance, right now, one of the biggest legal issues we have to contend with as correctional professionals is what's called PREA, or the Prison Rape Elimination Act. I won't go into too much detail about this legally, but suffice to say that this law enacted a whole set of operational changes to how prisons operate, going from Everything from installing doors on showers and toilets, all the way up to how we in psychology deal with and report sexual assault within the prison system, not only between inmates, but also sexual contact that sometimes happens between inmates and staff. Every prison today is continually monitored to ensure compliance with these laws, and this is just one example we could talk about rights regarding dietary requirements, communications with the outside world, religious expression, healthcare, education, recreation, and of course, psychology, what you and I do. You could probably spend years trying to educate yourself on all the different aspects regarding the treatment and care of inmates in this country.
1: And it's something that, when you work in the field, it is something that we are constantly being trained on as things change. So the other big change recently was the First Step Act. Yep. Um and that's been a huge piece of legislation and we've had numerous trainings. We'll continue to have numerous trainings, you know, and we have yearly train I mean we have it's constant. And it's for those very reasons because this stuff is it's important.
0: Yeah. It absolutely is important. You know, the they have inmates prisoners you know they have rights and we have to be aware of those rights we have to be sensitive to those rights regardless of whether we like them or not regardless of whether we think they're ridiculous or not this is the way it is and it's something that you and i just are going through our what's called art or annual refresher training that we go through every year and every year we talk about this stuff
1: well because it's important to remember that the people that we're taking care of are human beings. Absolutely. Um. You know, and we we can never lose sight of that. Yes, our job is to protect the public, but it's also to protect the people inside the prison as uh, well from each other. Yes. Right.
0: Absolutely. So you know this this fly by night sort of Abu Ghraib situation really strikes me as a Mickey Mouse operation. It was a hasty development thrown together. Much it seems the way the whole sort of military operation was during that whole fervor for retribution after 9-11. And there were all kinds of stories that came out after that about how, because we were moving so quickly that things were just sort of, there was a lot of things that weren't really well thought out. Mm -hmm. So uh, another quick story, you know, um, back in 2004, 2005, um, one of my fellow officers asked me if I wanted to work in an Iraqi prison. It was sort of an interesting thing. He tried to recruit me as part of a private workforce of COs hired to man prisons in Iraq. What I didn't realize was that at the time they were doing that. They were recruiting corrections officers from the federal system and probably from state prisons because of Abu Ghraib. They needed, they realized very quickly that, you know what? We need people who have experience.
1: Who know what they're doing. Who
0: know what they're doing. Wow. Yeah. People who have experience in this kind of work. And so there was a big promise of, you know, making a hundred thousand dollars a year tax free, this and that. You just got to go out to Iraq you know, work in a private prison or something like that. So there was definitely fallout from this even back then. Obviously, I didn't do that.
1: Right. Right. (laughs) Right.
0: So we can't escape talking about the soldier who was given the harshest sentence. And we'll, you know, there were a number of soldiers that were mentioned, but this is the one that you had referred to earlier, which is Charles Grainer.
1: Specialist Grainer.
0: Specialist Grainer, right. He was believed to be the ringleader of the abuses. And he quickly became the face of the scandal and was subsequently sentenced to 11 years in prison for it. And was released, I read, after six and a half. He was dishonorably discharged from the army, now lives his life as a private citizen from the accounts that I could dig up. There was some information available that stated he had a history of violence and even an article that we both read that put the blame for the abuses more squarely on him as this, quote, bad apple and others sort of as followers, rather than on a breakdown of leadership or lack of guidance. There was also some accounts that he received multiple complaints against him while he was working for the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. He was one of the few who actually had correctional experience. Right. Right. Okay, so let's talk about Grainer for a second. First off, anybody who works in corrections is familiar with the multitude of complaints that we receive for even the most petty of things. A number of officers that I know have been parties to lawsuits for some of the most ridiculous things you can imagine. I remember one inmate, he tried to sue all the officers who smoked for putting his health at risk with secondhand smoke.
1: Well, and they were smoking outside, right?
0: They were smoking outside. Okay. They, they actually have these little um, shacks and stuff sometimes where people will go to smoke. You know.
1: So yeah. the inmates aren't actually in there with them?
0: No, of course not. Oh, uh, okay. Absolutely uh-huh. not, no. Wow. Wow. This is just one example of how some inmates, you know, not all of them, but some, attempt to cause problems for staff just because they like to do that. We've had inmates attempt to place liens on staff's property. They've had inmates make false accusations of sexual assault. I mean, you name it. The list goes on and on. We expect that. This is what happens when you work with these types of criminals. They do stuff like this. They are criminals for a reason. Oftentimes, these particular inmates are somewhere on the personality disorder spectrum, and this is the type of stuff that people with antisocial personality issues do. They just like to make trouble. Chances are they're angry that they made the decisions in their life that got them incarcerated, and they like to take it out on those of us working at the prison. This kind of projection happens often. So to say that Grainer had complaints like this on his record does not surprise me at all. I think the vast majority of officers, like myself for 10 years, have at least one complaint. If you are doing your job correctly, that is holding inmates accountable for their actions, conducting your searches, your enforcing rules, you will at some point make inmates angry at you. Most times it will amount to nothing. It'll blow over. They'll get over it. But every now and then an inmate wants to take it further and file complaints against you. I once had an inmate complain to my supervisor because I placed a bag of his laundry on the ground, maybe for two or three minutes to pat him down. After which he picked his laundry back up and he went on his way. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I mean, so it happens quite frequently. That's not to say that we should just dismiss the complaints against Grainer, but it does suggest that stories regarding his time in the Department of Corrections, need to be seen within the context of the job. And it's not an easy job. So to reiterate what you said earlier, none of us have been soldiers. So we would choose our words about the experience of being a soldier in a foreign war carefully. Neither of us would presume to speak for the experiences of being in a hostile territory, I think. I do think that we can reasonably say from research and our own experiences working in corrections that the environment you work in will affect you over time. So, uh, a a scholar, researcher, um, MD, that I have been reading uh, lately, his name is Dr. Gabor Mate, he's a pretty famous writer, um, wrote in a book that I just finished about addiction that it is environment that overwhelmingly dictates the propensity of someone to become an addict. He even went so far as to assert that while many soldiers used opium while fighting in Vietnam, the majority of those who did use the drug actually stopped after they returned to the United States.
1: I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting um, statistic yeah. sort of fact that he brought up I because I did not know that either. He asserts that this was because it was the environmental stresses of fighting in Vietnam that pushed soldiers to use those drugs. Once the environment was changed, Dr. Maté claims, the soldiers didn't do the drugs anymore. (laughs) Obviously, this wasn't the case for a lot of Vietnam vets, but for the majority of them. So we have to examine the environment that these soldiers were forced to work in and the sense of lawlessness and uncertainty that was part of their mission to, on one side, be corrections officers and on the other to be soldiers attempting to extract information from enemy combatants. So, one last point, and then I'll let it rest. But A while back, I was flipping through Netflix, and I came across a movie called The Boys of Abu Ghraib, which, in my opinion, was a really well-done movie. If anyone out there is interested in Abu Ghraib, I recommend you check out this movie. It follows one soldier in particular as he gets sent to Iraq and then to work at Abu Ghraib. In the movie, he forms a relationship with one of the prisoners, which is sort of bound to happen when you work in close quarters with anyone for any length of time. All COs, corrections officers, form relationships with inmates, but good ones know how to walk that line of maintaining just the right amount of distance at the same time. Anyway, this soldier quickly becomes disillusioned when he starts to humanize this one particular prisoner only to find out that the prisoner was responsible for setting off a bomb in a coffee shop, killing a number of people. One of the things that the movie touches on and adds some fuel to the environmental argument, I think, is when the main character gets stop-lost. Some people may remember this policy. Um, years ago, Ryan Philippi did a movie, and I think it was called Stop Loss, about a, this controversial policy. Basically, stop loss is a policy that's written into military contracts that when you sign on to be a soldier, the government can involuntarily extend your tour of duty, deployment, or total military time. This clause can be enforced whenever the government felt that you and whatever job you did was necessary for the cause du jour. Anyway, in the movie Boys of Abu Ghraib, the main character gets stop-lost, so to speak, and is forced to serve two full tours instead of one. So can you imagine that, getting close to the end of your tour, thinking that you were about to see your family, your friends, you were about to get back to some kind of normal life, when suddenly the government drops that kind of bomb on you?
1: No, I was thinking about, like, what if, you know, we we can retire after 20 years? What if at the end of our 20 years they were like guess what? You have to do another 20.
0: That's uh, insane. I cannot be, even yeah, begin to imagine yeah, that.
1: Yeah, that would be really difficult. Yeah.
0: And we would. Th- there, people would be suing the government left and right. There's right. no way that that would, that would work out. So um, this is a stat from USA Today um, that I pulled up on Wikipedia. It, insa- it stated that soldiers affected by stop loss were then serving on average an extra six and a half months. And sergeants through sergeant's first class, made up 45% of the soldiers who were stop lost. From 2002 through April 2008, 58,300 soldiers were affected by stop-loss. That's about 1% of all active-duty reserve and National Guard troops.
1: Wow. Yeah,
0: that's a lot of people. Yeah. I could not find anywhere where it stated that Specialist Grainer was affected by stop loss. But it makes sense to me that this kind of uncertainty would definitely affect the morale of the soldiers manning Abu Ghraib. I think it would be very predictable for these soldiers to begin to take out much of their frustrations on the prisoners. So my point is, is that when you throw in all these issues, they make for a very chaotic and volatile environment. I feel that the soldiers working there were responding to this, albeit in very negative ways. Specialist Grainer is often seen as the face of this scandal, but I think he was made into a very convenient scapegoat in a lot of ways. His less-than-stellar record, which had some blemishes, lent itself to making him seem like one rogue soldier who was really the one responsible for the abuses. And there's no question, he was involved in that. Obviously, he made some very bad choices, but when you really zoom out and look at the whole picture... I think he was made to also take a lot of the responsibility for the failings of a lot of people going all the way up to the highest levels of government.
1: Hmm. So you're saying that you really do think it's far more the situation that led to this than personal characteristics. I think
0: the situation over there was a meat grinder. I don't know how else to say it. And I think that when you have a situation like this, you have a lack of clear guidance a lack of knowledgeable and competent leadership. I think that this is what's really going to happen. You had mentioned earlier, and we had talked about this um, before we started doing this episode, that this didn't, one of the things that was interesting about this case is why was it Abu Ghraib and none of the other prisons where people were being housed. Right. And my theory on that is that these abuses were probably going on in other prisons. They just didn't get caught. That would be my uh, my thought on that. Now, I, obviously, I can't prove no, that.
1: No, I mean, we don't know. Right.
0: Th- that's just speculation. But I really do believe that there was probably a lot more going on. It's just that Grainer was the only one taking pictures of it.
1: I don't know. I mean, I you can't dismiss the situation, the situational factors. I mean, I think that all of us in our daily lives can agree that our situations have an impact on how we behave, I just can't excuse his choices though and and I do think that we have control over our behavior even in situations where we're being ordered or directed to do things. And one of the things I don't think I mentioned earlier but they found that having an independent personality style makes people less likely to obey. Yeah. So, you know, you and I know that that we don't know, we can't speak to Kind of what they had been told or, and it sounds like they didn't receive very much training. But, you know, from my perspective, you always want to be thinking about what you're doing, and your responsibility and never just blindly follow. And again, I know that's easy for me to say. I, I wasn't in that situation directly, but I just worry about placing all of the blame on the situation. No,
0: I don't think that it, it is an a, a purely situation. There's no question he made very bad choices. If yeah. we're going to ta- if we're just talking solely about Grainer, there's no question that he made very bad choices and it's very unfortunate that some issues from his past marriages and stuff that we saw that came up um, you know, when we were doing our research for this lent him to being a very convenient scapegoat. So a bunch of people could say, well, look, this guy has a history of doing this, this, and this. And they were able to pull up records from Pennsylvania, Department of Corrections and such. And yeah, he because of his past choices, he became a very convenient scapegoat. But there is no way this guy was just acting as a rogue officer. I don't believe it. I just, I just do not believe it. I think that the whole situation was cooked i think he's the one that it really did take responsibility for a lot of people going all the way up the chain of command to include you know some people that we don't really that you know are above reproach from the law
1: i don't know though i mean you, you know you say that his past behavior made him a convenient scapegoat and that that's possible um, but it could also be that he had more of a tendency of treating people in that way.
0: Could very well be, you know, and, and I, I'll say this openly. And I've said it, you know, in the past, too, that I have a real problem with officers that we, you and I, and that I have worked with who wind up become, you know, who wind up getting caught for being dirty or for
1: being abusive. being abusive. Right? I have
0: a real problem with that. And yeah, and I do not like people who are like that. But I think and it's
1: it's a chicken and egg thing, right? I mean because it's like did you know do people who want to have access to abuse people seek out positions where they're in authority? Right. Or is it being in authority that leads people to abuse other people? Right. And and I don't know that that's a, a question that we can ever answer 100% and it, it probably depends. But in this case, you know, and I don't know. I mean, I think that it is possible that his personality characteristics um, contributed quite a a bit to his behavior. Yeah. yeah,
0: And you may very well be correct in that, you know, I mean, we'll never know until, you know, unless we got a a copy of some sort of psychological profile on him
1: or like some autobiography that he wrote or something, right? Something
0: like that. Right. But if I had to put, if I had to put a number to it, I would say that, okay, maybe 30%, this is his personality. The other 70% is just the lawlessness and just the chaos of the situation that they were thrown into. This was, again, like I said, it was a meat grinder. Yeah. You know, and this is what comes of that.
1: Well, I guess we should probably wrap things up for this episode. And, you know, we'll have some links to uh, some of the things that we spoke about in the episode on our webpage. Uh, you can find those on the discussion section at psychologyafterdark.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at psychologyafterdark. So please be sure to visit us there. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please give us a five-star rating or leave us a review. And thank you guys for all of your emails and messages. We love hearing from you, and we've gotten some really great episode ideas. So thanks again. And uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks with a brand new episode.
0: Thanks for joining us.
1: The information contained in our podcast on our webpage and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Jamendo.